This is the Building the Future Freedom Development Foreign Policy Podcast Series. I'm Dan Rundy. Brad, I'm thrilled to have you on. Thanks for making the time. When did you graduate from West Point? 1995. And you were in the Army for 15 years? 15 years active duty, yeah. After my seven years or so flying in Army aviation, I applied to go back and teach at West Point. And so I got accepted to that. So I went into grad school at Yale and then went and taught three years at West Point in Department of Social Sciences, teaching American foreign policy, American politics, and grand strategy. So there are a lot of, there's a, CSIS has a long history with West Point uh, political science department. Yeah, yeah. And so there were a number of people who taught in the, I'm going to say the 50s and 60s oh. at West Point's political science department. Yeah in 70s who came here and had various distinguished roles here at CSIS. Yeah. So there was a lot of there was a there was a connectivity between CSIS and West Point in a, in, a, in another in another day and uh, that's great. So it was a wonderfully wonderful. fulfilling 3 years because there I was an active duty army officer but I was able to publish and write and teach cadets and it was just a wonderful 3 years. That's I awesome. was I was reluctant to leave and then after that I did a uh, Council on Foreign Relations, International Affairs Fellowship yep. on the Foreign Relations, and then Pentagon for two years, Afghanistan, came back, got out, and then that's when my Senate you, time You were started. in Afghanistan? I was for what, six months. What were you doing there? The first three months I helped, uh, I worked under General McChrystal to stand up a Task Force 2010, Design and Task Force 2010, whose purpose was to identify corruption U.S. contracting networks okay. that was be using, used to get money to, uh, for the Taliban. Oh, uh, and then in the second three years, I worked under uh, General McMaster, three General Petraeus, the subsequent three months, right? Um, working on combined joint interagency task force Shafafiat, working on Afghan corruption, and, and I wrote General Petraeus's counterinsurgency contracting guidance for him under McMaster's. That's great. So, yeah, that's great. So, so the that must have been great. What was that like working for these generals? These it was famous amazing. People? I, I think yeah, you know, uh, General McMaster is the chairman of our board of advisors at the Center of Military Political Power, and so I, I think he's just a national treasure. Frankly, um, uh, he's a rare combination of someone who is just. Uh, uh, incredible bravery on the battlefield uh, and from the first Gulf War leadership and also as a scholar you know his, his, his book Dereliction of Duty is one of the greats in, in, uh, in recent years in recent he's a great one of our great minds I agree and I thought the national security strategy that he led yes. I thought was an important contribution that yes. came out in 2018 yes 2018 yeah, and Nadia Shadlow helped uh, she's with just that. tremendous she's on our board as well so we've got a, a fairly uh, we have Leon Panetta on our board uh, we got Bob Work. Uh, I saw your board. It's a great. You have a great lineup. Yeah, we're proud of it. I'll come back to you about that. But yeah, that is please. fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure it speaks to you and also speaks to FDD. But and so okay, so you did. You went to the army and you had done an international affairs fellowship. How did you end up on, back at SFRC as a as a civilian? How'd yeah, that happen? So I, I made the kind of unusual decision to get out of the army at 15 years active duties. You know, some people called me brave, some people called me foolish, but I felt like that there might be opportunities for me outside of the army. And so I gave it a shot. So before my Afghanistan deployment, I put, put in my paperwork to get out, did my deployment, came back and got out. And I was within an, a couple hours, literally, of accepting a job with a defense supplier when I got a call from Kelly Ayotte's office, the senator from New Hampshire, newly elected, looking for someone to staff her on the Armed Services Committee. And uh, two hours later, I was uh, in a suit, you know, having shaved and, and being interviewed outside the Senate floor by Senator Ayotte. And that began uh, my work supporting her on the, form, on the Armed Service Committee for six years on the Readiness Subcommittee as chair and ranking member. And it was just an incredibly fulfilling time for me. That must have been amazing. Did you, did you, uh, she did a lot of uh, international travel and in her, as her duties. Did, did you accompany her? She did travel a fair amount. I did not travel with her all the time. I did plan one particular trip for yeah. her with uh, Senator Donnelly. Yeah. Uh, and we 
we went to Ukraine, Israel, and Afghanistan. And so I put that trip together for her and, and traveled with That's her. That's great. But just, you know, basically staffing her more or less for every Armed Services Committee hearing for six years. I mean, That's amazing. Um, you know, working on important things like restoring the uh, all the American graves at Clark Veterans Cemetery that had been covered in volcanic ash to, mm. to you know, preventing what we considered the premature retirement of the A-10 to advocating for, you know, Absolutely premature. Shipyard. The absolute <laughs> premature retirement of the A-10. So things that I'll enjoy telling the grandkids about someday. So, so yeah. on uh, just on the A-10, the um, the A-10 is the A-10 Warthog. It's That's the right. spe- and it's yeah. a kind of a, it's something that the the Army likes and the Air Force doesn't. That's a fairly good summary. Right. Uh, every you know, I'm a former Blackhawk pilot, and so every air we all love our the aircraft that we fly. A-10 pilots are very partial to the A-10. But in the end, every aircraft is retired sooner or later. The question is, when do you retire and what do you replace it with? And the argument that we made was, Air Force, you should not retire the A-10 until you have an equally capable close air support platform. Because when our guys on the ground call call for help and are getting shot at, good good enough is not good enough. Thank you. And and, and uh, I don't want to be writing, you know, no one should be writing letters homes to, to husbands, wives, or parents saying, you know, that your, your husband or wife would be alive. If, if we, we did. If we, and unfortunately, that's not theoretical. There was an incident in Afghanistan in 2014 or 2015 where four or five Americans died because a B-1 was sent for a close air support mission. And, and, and have they gotten rid of the A-10 at this point? No, they haven't. And actually, the chief of staff of the Air Force just said in the last week that it's going to be flying into the 2030s. So, you know, they, 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 it would have been gone by now long ago if it weren't for the efforts of Ayotte and McCain. Um, and, and, we, and, and, and to Senator Ayotte's credit, she did it without the help of a major de- uh, defense company. We basically listened to our infantrymen, our special operators, and our, and our air, air controllers who said there is no better platform. And uh, Senator Ayotte undertook a four-year effort without the help of any defense money or defense suppliers. And year by year defeated the Air Force, not because the Air Force was evil. The Air Force had a finite budget imposed upon them, and they said, uh, you know, we need to retire this to make room for the F-35. Our argument is we understand that, but don't come to the Hill and make the argument that all aircraft are equal because they're not. What they should have said is there's going to be a decline in the quality of close air support. We'll do our best to mitigate that decline. That's what they should have said. What they instead said is all aircraft are equal, and that was not true. I totally agree with that. That is so. I knew. I'm glad I asked the A10 question. <laughs> Sorry, don't get me so started. So you're the. So you're the. You were the. You were Kelly Ayotte's A10 guy. Yeah, yeah. That that will get me uh, a coffee in some circles and curses in another. Depending, <laughs> who, depending who you. Talk well, to I will buy you a really big okay. latte okay. as a result of that. I think that's great. Okay. And so what? So you worked on the A10 with her, and so, I mean, she was just. She was a tremendous senator. Yeah, she was. She really believed in U.S. international leadership and engagement. She believed that all other things being equal, we need to operate from a position of strength, not belligerence, but strength, and that things tend to work out better for the American people when the United States is strong. And if we don't lead, someone else will, i.e. China and Russia. And so that's one of the great things about working for her is that I felt so aligned with her in all the major areas, certainly within my portfolio. And over time, I was able, I think, to earn her trust. And so she gave me a very long leash, and I kind of understood her commander's guidance, if you will. And then I moved out and made the details happen. And so w- were there other things? So you worked in the A-10. How, how, what was that like in terms of – I mean, she was just tireless on that issue. Was part of your job trying to fi- – helping her find allies for this, at the working partnering with staff? How did that, how did that come about? It, it was. I mean, her husband flew the A-10 in the first Gulf War. So, frankly, I think it was probably a, you know, a kitchen table discussion at one point. Um, and uh, – but then as I quickly dug into it, I started to become a true believer myself. I, you know, I started to learn the details about not just the aircraft, but the pilots and, and the unique relationship they have with our infantrymen and, and the people on the ground. And so I really became a true believer. And the neat thing about Capitol Hill is um, once you identify yourself with a particular issue, people come to you. 
And so I, w over time, we developed a network where I would find out something from the Air Force before the Air Force Battalion Commander knew it because they were contacting us offline saying, hey, you need to know this, they're doing that. And so when she would go into hearing, we would know more every time than the Air Force witness was about what was happening within the service. And that played to our tremendous advantage. And when the Air Force up to the two-star level refused to answer Senator Ayotte's questions, uh, I recommended, and she put a hold on the nominee to be Secretary of the Air Force until they were responsive. So right from the beginning, Senator Ayotte said, I'm not playing here. You're going to take me seriously. I'm on your oversight committee. We're the Article One branch of government. American lives are on the line. You need to answer my question. Amen. So That's great. And so so sadly, she lost. That she was did. That made me very About sad. About 0.1%, but, but who's counting? Oh, yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> it was really horrible. I just really admire her very much, and I hope we haven't seen the last of her public service. She's a very, very special uh, public servant. I'm a great admirer of her work, and uh, and obviously she had folks like yourself that helped her, you know, succeed in her role as a U.S. senator. Yeah, no, she was a wonderful boss. She lost by a razor thin margin. You know, New Hampshire has been a purple state for a while, depending whether it's a presidential year or a midterm year. Um, but she's she's remained busy. You know, she's a former attorney general of her state, working under governors of both parties. She's argued before the Supreme Court. Uh, she's staying busy. She's young. She's smart. She's a defense hawk uh, woman from New England. So I, I suspect she's not done, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Exactly, exactly. So then when Senator Aya lost, how did you end up working for Senator Todd Young? You know, no one cares more about elections than staff, right? Because it's a, it determines whether you have a job or not. Yeah. And I was out of a job and I needed to find one. And, and uh and so I started to look around, and um, my legislative director for all six years with AOT went to work for Senator Young. And so oh. at one point, he called me and said, hey, Brad, you know, we had a great thing going. Why don't you come continue with me with uh, Senator Young? And I had been admiring from afar Senator Young. Based, you know, he's a Naval Academy grad and served in the Marine Corps and has more graduate degrees than I can count. And, and uh, I heard that he was going to be on the Foreign Relations Committee. So everything just kind of lined up. And I said, hey, this looks good. I'll go give it a try. And, and so I was able to work for Senator Young for two years. What were the sorts of issues that you took on or that Senator Young took on as, in the two years you were with him? Senator Young brought a real, um, a real intellectual curiosity, a real willingness to really dig into the details and read and study in a way that I think many members uh, either don't have time or just choose not to for a variety of reasons. So I really admired him on that front. Um, he really went in thinking that the Foreign Relations Committee needed to be a better version of its current self. Uh, in other words, you're an authorization committee, but if it's been more than a decade since you've passed an authorization bill, one could argue that that committee is not fulfilling its constitutional responsibilities at a time when we need the Article One branch of doing that government doing that with respect to the State Department and USAID. And so uh, I'll never forget, I went uh, in those early days when I was kind of gathering information, and frankly, it was quite a stark contrast from what I was observing between the Armed Service Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, the Armed Service Committee was passing an authorization bill every year, you know, every year for 55 plus years. And yet the Foreign Relations Committee hadn't done one, you know, since Jesse Helms, you know, a full fledged authorization. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying anyone uh, involved there is evil or nefarious, but for a variety of reasons, it just wasn't happening. And so we kind of went on a little mini listening tour, you know, understanding, trying to understand why that was and what the consequences of it were. And I, I'll never forget, I was talking to the State Department liaison officer, and I was asking budget-related questions. And uh, this individual, who was a patriotic American, leaned over to me and basically said, you know, Brad, we don't really talk about budget issues with members of the Foreign Relations Committee. 
And after I kind of caught my breath, I went back to him and said, do you realize if someone from the Department of Defense said that to someone on, this, on the Armed Services Committee, they'd behead you? Yeah. <laughs> and the reason that individual felt comfortable saying that to me is because the Foreign Relations Committee had not passed an authorization bill for more against Jesse Helms. So why would they care? Why would they just not work with the Appropriations Committee? So, um, you know, we could talk at length about um, why that is and what the consequences of that. But I think now more than ever, the, United, the American people need a Article One branch of government that's fulfilling its responsibilities. And if you're an authorization committee, you should be passing an authorization bill. But why, why do you think that is? Why is that? I think it's it's uh, you know I made the comparison earlier to the Armed Service Committee. To be fair, um, it's not a, it's not a completely fair comparison, right? Because every senator, every congressperson has uh, s- service members who live in their district. You have military bases, you have defense suppliers. There's nothing really equivalent like that for a state in USAID. I mean, you have former Foreign Service officers like that, but nothing like that. Um, and so there's less of a parochial incentive, I think. I think also there's. Um, uh, more of an opportunity for you know poison pill amendments you know so when it comes to the floor you're going to have certain senators who are going to want to introduce legislation to cut all foreign aid or things like that so for all sorts of reasons it's harder to get it out of committee it's harder to get it uh, off the floor and there's less uh, you know less uh, parochial interest uh, or incentive to do it what else talks about some of the other things because he, he has become somebody that if you care about development, or you care about foreign yeah. policy on the Republican Party, yeah. he's the per- he's one of the first phone calls you make now, yeah. partially because of you oh. and partially because of his of his leadership and interest. Yeah, I mean, he's, it's so much of it is about being on the, the appropriate committee, and he's on. Despite what I just said about the Foreign Relations Committee, it is the right committee to be on in many ways if you want to be active in these development uh, related issues. And he comes from the strain of, of the Republican Party that I would characterize as kind of the Mattis school, that, you know, that we need all elements of, of U.S. military power, not just the military. You need uh, uh, super-empowered, well-resourced, well-designed, well-implemented diplomacy and development. Amen. And the less uh, effective we are as a country in terms of our diplomacy and development, unfortunately, the more we're going to have to use the military. We're going to have to buy more bullets. And uh, as, as, as the chair of CMPP, General McMaster, often says, and Nadia Shadla says as well, we need to consolidate military gains after we achieve them. If you don't consolidate military gains after you achieve them, you're going to have to be back a few months or a few years later doing the very same thing with the blood and treasure of our service members. And so um, when I see the Trump administration, when I saw the Trump administration recommending that we cut state and U.S. by 30 percent, that's why Senator Young led two years in a row, 40 plus member letters saying, no, that's that's, that's not, not going to happen. That's not, that's, one, it's not going to happen. And two, that's just, that's counter to America's interest. And uh, so I really admire your work, Dan, on, on development issues. And when, and when we were looking around town for a, a think tank to partner with and a leader to partner with, you were just an absolute no-brainer. And frankly, uh, uh, this kind of tying the threads together here, during one hearing, Senator Young uh, leaned over to me and said, Brad, you know, I want to get things done. I'm frustrated that, you know, um, Congress is not functioning the way I want it to. Let's try to find ways, much like um, Paul Ryan did, in, in working with outside groups to try to advance the ball and make progress. And so it was that conversation that led me to call you. That's and, amazing. And that's what, that's what led to you know, the development task force that you led and that, and that he and Senator Shaheen were so proud to co-chair. Yeah, talk about that because I'd love to talk about myself, but I'd love to hear your, your <laughs> version of it because I loved working on yeah. that with you. Yeah, no, I'm, it's sincere because, you know, uh, I think we, there's bipartisan agreement that Congress is not in many ways working the way that we want it to. Um, I'm teaching a class right now at Georgetown at the School of Foreign Service on Congress and National Security Policy, and one of the lessons we just covered was all the ways that members can get things done outside of legislation. And, uh, 
you know, when an administration submits a budget request that uh, has elements of it that are not good or is looking at reforms that don't make sense, i.e. USAID, um, there's legislative uh, ways to address that, but that's hard these days, given what I've said about Congress. And there's kind of what I would call the outside game. And the outside game is, is shaping uh, the thinking of key decision makers about what good reform looks like and what bad reform looks like. And that's what we were able to do working with you and CSIS on the development task force. So there was some... You know, so we did that here. I think it's a, close to a land speed record. I mean, so I think <laughs> partially because we were, yeah. I was able to partner yeah. with you on this. Yeah. But from our first conversation to publishing something and rolling it out, yeah, I think it was less than ten weeks. Yeah, no, you you and your team just worked uh, so hard to pull it off, and it's. I think it's a rare case where we did something quickly, but we also did it well. We did it well. We had thirty sta- uh, co- task force members, but critically, we had your boss mm-hmm. and we had Senator Shaheen. We had you, and so and he. I, I know that your boss went into the Senate dining room and was like round, yeah. r- rounding yeah. people up. Yeah. And so, th- the other thing I, I admire about your boss was that he was willing to use the power of hearings. Yes. And you were and oh, you yeah. and did was that something you had learned with Senator Senator Ayotte? Was that something like had she? Yeah, it, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, again, the two committees are different, but you know, Ayotte for all six years was either the the senior Republican, the chair, or ranking member on the readiness yeah. subcommittee, which arguably is one of the more important yeah. subcommittees over there, um, and. Uh, when we were putting in our wish list for which subcommittee Young, Senator Young wanted to chair, you know, there was this multilateral subcommittee had kind of the longest, silliest title you can imagine. Like, like but, CSIS uh, yeah. or CMPP, <laughs> right, FDD. Right. Think of the acronym for that right. one. But, but, but what I quickly realized is that long, silly title gave us a jurisdiction you could drive a truck to basically cover anything you want. If I yeah. set the word multilateral in front of it, we could do anything you we wanted. Do anything want. I, so, I, was, I thought of that too, and I saw that. Yeah. I was like, you guys can do anything you want exactly. from this committee. I mean, envir- energy, environment, anything economic you Policy. I mean, that kind of covers everything other than the kitchen sink. Yeah. So, um, so Senator Young, uh, to his credit, you know, because the, the demands on Senator's time is just crazy. I mean, they're scheduled down at the 15-minute interval sometimes, sometimes double, triple booked over. Yeah. So in uh, if my count is right, over the two years that I was there with him, he did uh, eight subcommittee hearings. <sighs> and I believe in the previous two years they did one. Not so he, one day and, – and, and I don't want to oversell that. A, a hearing is not legislation. No. But, but, but you do what you can with what you have, and that's what he was – doing with those hearings and you know he did he did a hearing on why food security matters you know trying to explain to some folks frankly in in the party who uh, didn't fully appreciate that if you know if you if people are lacking basic food that they're going to be more susceptible to terrorist radicalization there's going to be more instability the kind of reports that world food program usa put out recently so and then you, he had a good relationship with senator merkley Yes. No, they, you know, they were. Uh, he was the, he was the ranking. Yeah, the senior Democrat on this subcommittee for the last years was Senator Merkley of Oregon. And, um, you know, it's hard to imagine two individuals uh, more dissimilar Very politically, you know, yeah. Oregon versus Indiana, yep, yep. Um, you know, different backgrounds. But they had a respect for one another. And, and, and the way that the subcommittee works is every hearing you do has to basically be both both the chair and ranking member have to agree to it. So every one of those eight hearings, we had to agree on the topic. We had to agree on the witnesses. And so, you know, there's a lot of reason for cynicism these days. But I would point to that subcommittee and how they behaved over the last two years. If you go and watch those videos. It's, it's, to me, it's an example of people who could not be more different politically or able to operate in a civil, professional manner in the service of our country. Now, I will tell you something. I was, I, since I testified between the, before the two of them, yeah. that is true. Yeah. That is true. And I think, I think your boss and his, your former boss and, and Senator Merkley uh, were – I never saw them ever – I saw them always collaborative, mm-hmm. and it, it, they approached things from a problem-solving manner. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, totally. And, and you had a good, you have a good relationship with his staffer? Totally, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. I mean, we worked, uh, I mean, again, we none of those hearings would have happened if there wasn't yeah, a good, me- good member, both member and staff level coordination. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely the case. Okay, so finally on Capitol Hill. So if you, somebody said to you, okay, I'm now, uh, I've just been named uh, a staffer for, uh, uh, to work with Lindsey Graham or some other, let's call it a conservative internationalist, Republican senator on either armed services or Senate foreign relations, what advice would you give that staffer? Mm. What would be two or three pieces of advice wow. that you'd say to a staffer? Well, I'd say first I'd say congratulations on 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 having a job in the United States Senate. I, I mean, I, I'll, a little silly saying that I have is it's one of those places where um, you can be shaving and think of a question, and then two hours later a U.S. senator is asking that of the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State. And then two hours later, or sometimes even before you leave the hearing, you're reading a, a political story about the idea you had when you're shaving. And then three months later, it's U.S. law. So if your goal is to make a difference, if your goal is to do good, working on Capitol Hill is just, it's a thrill. It's exhilarating. And so for any young folks out there listening, I mean, I just really would encourage you to consider uh, you know, a job in the U.S. government generally, but in particular on Capitol Hill. It's just a wonderful place to start. Um, and obviously, I stayed for there a while for I enjoyed it so much. So one, congratulations to say. Two, congratulations on working for a member who's on a national security committee because that's going to enable you to do a lot of things that you wouldn't otherwise if you didn't have a member on that committee. Three, I would say earn, work hard to earn the trust of your member as quickly as possible. Um, make sure that you're aligned with that member because you're going to be working so hard, you're going to be working so late, you don't want to be working for a member who has views that are disparate from yours. Make sure you're aligned. If you are aligned, work to get their trust as quickly as possible and then move out and be proactive. Everything you do, you need to have attention to detail. If it's got your name on it, they got to know that it's quality and that it's correct. And then you move out and look for opportunities to find that sweet spot between what's good for our country and what's good for the state. Got it. Okay, thank you. That's good advice. Uh, last October, I said, yeah, you know, let's see what else is out there. And I came back and they said, yeah, we're still interested, but now we have a name and we have McMaster as chair of our board. I said, great. No, and so I know him. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know that guy. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was just too good to pass up. Yeah. As much as I enjoyed my time with Senator Young and as sad as it was to leave, that was just too good to pass up. You know, for, you know, I, I mentioned that I published a little bit when I was teaching at West Point, but to, after eight years to finally have my own voice again in terms of speaking and writing in public and starting to comment on some of the issues that I've basically been doing in some form or another since 1991 it was just too good to pass up and and so going into a think tank that's been around since 9-11 but kind of helping them do something a little bit new in terms of defense policy and strategy so we understand the threat right but what is DOD going to do about it what capabilities policy strategy does DOD need to do and so that opportunity was just too good to pass up okay so what are some of the things in your inbox right now in your new yeah. life yeah, we're, I'd say generally speaking, we're very aligned with the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And by that, I mean uh, uh, a focus on great power competition, the reemergence of great power competition with China and Russia, the persistent threat yet that we continue to confront from North Korea and Iran. Um, and so those are kind of where I'm focusing in terms of threats. But uh, as I just said, more importantly, though, focusing on what DOD should do about it. Do you have your own link on the website? I do. Tell I me do. About that. Yeah. So we have a, FDV has a very nice website. I have my own page. I've already published several op-eds and policy briefs and you know i've been there about a month and a half and got you know eight ten pieces i've already published oh. and and so i'm i'm uh, trying to do about one a week at least and i think the, that's great so the la- i just did a piece on the the trump administration's decision working with south korea to change our military exercise in south korea and the consequences for that i'm a little bit concerned frankly i did a piece on how the u.s should respond to 
Putin's violation of the INF Treaty. Uh, I did a, a larger piece with my former boss, Kelly Ayotte, on trying to build a national security consensus around uh, making sure that we provide our service members sufficient resourcing. Um, so anyway, just a number of issues, and it's, it allows me to kind of go where I think uh, the need is. I really focus on areas where I see a, a decision coming in the next few weeks or months that's going to have strategic or grand strategic impact, trying to be agile based on my kind of odd combination of military, academic, and Hill experience. Thanks for making the time. Congratulations. FTD is very fortunate to have you. FTD is a great think tank, and I think that the Center on Military and Political Power is going to be a place to watch here in Washington, so I'm really happy to have had you on today.